0: But what you do find out here is that John the Baptist's disciples had come to him, remember, a couple of weeks ago. They came to Jesus and said, hey, or came to John and said, hey, John, this guy that you said was a Messiah, man, there's a bunch of people following him. And, and it caused some problems. And also it says in verse 1 that Jesus knew about the Pharisees finding out about this big crowd. And the Pharisees were always suspicious. So it says in verse 3, he left. Jesus just decided to leave. Now, two reasons why he left. One, he didn't want to confront the Pharisees. It wasn't his time yet. Jesus would. Bigger part of his conversations that are recorded in the the Gospels are his conversations with Pharisees, but not yet. But the second reason was that John the Baptist was sent to preach and to prepare the way for Jesus. And Jesus didn't want to pull the crowds away from him, so he decided to leave. He wasn't going to compete. John still had a ministry. John still had things he needed to do before he would eventually be put in prison and beheaded. So, verse 4, he had to go through Samaria on the way. Now, that's interesting because Jesus really didn't have to. In fact, I can assure you, his disciples, when they came to that fork in the road, said, uh-uh, uh <laughs> We don't go that way. That's the... That's the way to Samaria. Now, it was a shorter way. It was really a shortcut to get to Galilee. But the Jews hated the Samaritans. Samaritans hated the Jews. They didn't have anything to do with each other. And so when a a Jew was heading from Judea or the Jerusalem area to Galilee, near the Sea of Galilee, they went the long way around. But not Jesus. I could could just imagine that conversation. Those disciples going, "Uh uh-uh wait a minute let's fill you in here Jesus we don't do that but notice what it says here it says he had to go through Samaria now the reason he had to go because there was a divine appointment waiting on him God had organized and orchestrated a woman who would be there in Sychar waiting at a well and Jesus had a divine appointment with her now let let me let me stop there for a minute I believe every single one of us have divine appointments every day. If you're a Christian, you've given your life to Christ, the reason God didn't take you to heaven instantly when you were saved is because he says, I got something for you to do. It's called the Great Commission. And and what God does is put people, orchestrate people, direct people to cross your path for you to be a witness to. It's no telling how many divine appointments I've missed in my life too busy, too distracted, maybe not even care. I got my own stuff. I ain't got time. And yet God says, listen, I've got divine appointments, people that need to hear the good news, people that need a witness. I want to just challenge you right here because this story really is twofold. One, it's going to encourage, hopefully, and equip you to have gospel conversations. You hear that all the time. We'll never We'll never quit encouraging you to do that because that's, that's the Great Commission. That's what Jesus modeled. He never told us to, hey, go out and be, get a big crowd and, and teach on the hillside. No, he did that. That was just kind of the context of what he was doing. But you'll find here the gospel conversations that he had, Nicodemus, woman at the well, his disciples. Those are the things he modeled for us. I want to encourage you every morning. We ought to all wake up and say, Lord, help me to be aware and ready and prepared for those divine appointments. Help me to get my eyes open and see them when they happen. I I, I can just assure you, I'm not a prophet, but I can tell you, tomorrow, you're going to have somebody that's going to cross your path that I can assure you, God had orchestrated, he designed it, and that person is there for you. It might be as simple as you just being kind to somebody, encouraging somebody. But the Lord will have some divine appointments for you. That's what he did in verse 4. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Now, eventually, verse 5, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Now, that's important. Soon, verse 7, a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Now, let's go back to noontime. Why is that there? Well, this Samaritan woman was not like other women because typically a woman would go get water in the morning when it was cool or later in the afternoon, not in the heat of the day. So why did this woman do that? Why is she showing up at noon? Well, when you read a little further, we'll find out what kind of woman she was. Her lifestyle uh, probably got her a lot of criticism. And maybe she didn't want to show up in the morning because all those people would come. And maybe they had criticized her, judged her, put her down. And so she's like, I don't want anything of that. Now, let me me just say this. Folks, there are people that don't come to church because they're afraid of being rejected, criticized, judged. And that ought not to be. Our doors are open. We welcome people to church. If there's anything about this example that Jesus gives us that we ought to learn from, it's that he welcomed a person that needed salvation. Anybody that walks into our church, anyone, you, me, anyone, is a person who needs Christ. And that's our priority. We're not to judge. You don't find anything in here. In fact, this is a pretty pretty bold statement that That is made here about Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman because you see what he says first thing he says right here in verse 7 he says please give me a drink of water was what's so bold about that Jewish men didn't talk to women in public and especially a Samaritan woman even husbands were not allowed to talk to their wives in public I got a lot of laughs at 8 o'clock on that but that's true if you were out with your wife in public you couldn't speak to her in public you had to wait till private and and again what makes this so bold is the fact that here was a Samaritan woman here was a a Jewish rabbi speaking to her notice what verse 8 says he was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food the woman was surprised for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan woman. Notice the question, why are you asking me for a drink? Now you gotta understand something here. Not only was it it taboo for Jesus to speak to the woman, but he was asking her for a drink, which means one, Jesus didn't have a cup. If he had something that he could have gotten water from the well, he probably would have done it himself, but he didn't, he wasn't carrying a cup. So he looks at her and says, hey, can you give me some water out of your pot? Or maybe she had a cup along with her, and could you give me some water out of your cup? Now, what's the big deal about that? Because for a a Jew to touch a Samaritan would defile them. That's how bad they thought of Samaritans. And so he was saying, not only will you give me a drink, but he was literally asking to drink out of her water pot, which would defile him. Now, characteristic of Jesus. We know that lepers were unclean. You didn't touch a leper. And yet, he would go up and touch. So, again, just a way for, for us to see an example here. Verse 10, notice what Jesus says. He replies, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. Now, what he does here is just transition this conversation. And notice the word he uses here at the end, living water. He, he's not preaching to her here. He's not trying to, to get in her face. He's just taking the conversation to a point where he can begin to move it to where he can begin talking to her about spiritual needs. So he brings up the term living water. It's a great example for us. When you're talking to somebody, talk about things that interest them. Talk about things that will, will help to move this conversation to spiritual conversation. Look at what she says in verse 11. But, sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said. This well is very deep. Where would we get this living water? She was interested. He just said living water, and she was like, whoa, I, where do I get this? Verse 12, Messiah, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Now, obviously, she didn't get it. she, She was thinking of physical water, and Jesus was beginning to turn this conversation, but she did show the interest in living water. So notice what he says next. Verse 13, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. Now, again, he's, he's not moved into some deeper spiritual conversation. He's just taking what he has, water. It'd be the same as, I, I, you may have seen on Sunday morning. I bring a bottle of water in here. It's about half gone right now. I, every Sunday before I get up here, I, I have some water because my mouth gets really dry. But, you know, if Jesus was here, he would say, see that water? you can drink that whole bottle and guess what? You're still going to be thirsty. This water is not going to satisfy your desire for water. You're going to drink it and you go outside and do something or preach another sermon. Guess what? You're going to need some more water. That's all Jesus was saying. He was just saying, listen, earthly things won't satisfy you. For him, it was water. For you and I, Maybe your testimony, when you came to Christ, you had tried some things to to satisfy your life, and you realized nothing. You see, here's the point with this gospel conversation. This is Jesus, but if if this was us, you would then, at that point, be maybe giving your testimony of things in your life that you've experienced that just never brought you happiness. At least it didn't last. I, I think about I think about King Solomon. You go back in the Old Testament. King Solomon, David's son. I mean, the Bible says he was wealthy, stinking wealthy. <laughs> I mean, in fact, if you take all the wealth he had then and kind of relate it to, to the value of his wealth today, he would be by, by far the wealthiest man that would ever live. I mean, he, he had an incredible amount of wealth. He had wisdom. The Bible said that he asked God to give him wisdom. God gave him wisdom, and he was the wisest man the Bible says ever lived. Nobody's compared to his wisdom. He also had hundreds and hundreds of wives, concubines. And so when you get to the end of his life, he writes this book called Ecclesiastes. And you see, after he shares about all these things he's tried and searched for happiness, he writes at the end, he says, you know what? They're all vanity. In other words, they're all empty nothing that I had brought me satisfaction. I don't know if years ago, I think it was after the fourth or maybe fifth Super Bowl that Tom Brady had won. Months later, they interviewed him. So when he was playing for the Patriots and this guy was asking him, he said, hey, what's, what's next for Tom Brady? I mean, you've won four or five Super Bowls. I don't know how many it was at that time, but it was a lot. He said, what's next? And I'll never forget. He says, well, He said, I don't know. He said, there's just something missing. And and the guy that was interviewing him was taken back because he was like, what's missing? I mean, Tom, you've won all these Super Bowls. What's left for you? And he went back to that same statement. There's just something missing. He was saying, you know what? All the Super Bowl rings I can get will never satisfy. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 13. Look what else he says in verse 14 but those, now here he's, he's put, adding that word, but he's going to transition now to a head-on spiritual unfold here. He says, those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. What's he saying? Only Jesus can satisfy our souls and give us eternal life. Only Jesus, Jesus alone. You come to that place in your life when you're accepting Jesus is that you acknowledge he is all I need he is he is the one that will bring satisfaction to my life now when you think about your soul I mean we talk some in church about our our soul what 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 is our soul we had a discussion this Wednesday night at, at, at our small group and uh It was really interesting when you start thinking about our soul because it's not something we see, it's not something we touch. And so when you talk about Jesus satisfying our soul, what does that mean? It sounds real churchy. Well, here's what it means. Every one of us, again, going back to these things we all have in common, we all have a soul, we're all created in the image of God. And that soul, to be satisfied, can only be satisfied by one thing. Now you could say, well, it's Jesus, Specifically, the love of Jesus. Your heart has an emptiness that we try to fill with everything the world offers us, but there's only one thing that will satisfy your soul, and that is the love of Christ. That's why the gospel begins with God's love for you. John three sixteen God so loved the world. And when he died on the cross, what does the Bible say? God demonstrated his love to us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so it's, it's the gospel that says your soul needs to experience unconditional perfect love. I, that's why many times when I, when I deal with married couples, what I see is that maybe a, a husband or maybe a wife has put so much expectation. In other words, I, I, I see wives many times that want their husbands to be their savior, to give, give her that love that only God can give. Now, God tells husbands to love your wife like Christ loved the church, but we're never to draw attention to that is our love. It's always, we're to draw attention to her that it's Jesus that loves you. I can't love you perfectly. I can, I can love you with the love of Christ, which is a perfect love or a wife, maybe, or a husband maybe that's wanting their wife to be their savior and meet their needs and satisfy them, that God never intended that to happen in a marriage relationship like that. Only Jesus can satisfy our souls. Look what else is said here. Verse 15, this is how she responds. "'Please, sir,' the woman said, "'give me this water, then I'll never be thirsty again, "'and I won't have to come here to get water.'" She didn't get it. She's still thinking about physical water. She's still thinking about this bottle of water satisfying her. She said, hey, I, listen, I want that. Give it to me. She missed it. Well, <laughs> later on, chapter 6, Jesus is going to get to Galilee eventually. In fact, one of the first things he does there, big crowd of people, they're hungry. He feeds them. A couple of fish, a couple of loaves of bread, pieces of bread. He multiplies it and feeds a crowd of about 20,000. And then he teaches them about him being the bread of life and he says this to him we'll find that when we get to chapter six he says i can give you bread from heaven that you'll never die you know what the people said (laughs) bring it on (laughs) more bread you fed us this man give us another meal we'll take it free bread and if we eat that kind of bread we'll never die they missed it too so jesus turns this conversation in verse 16 kind of kind of turns it into where he wants her to understand the importance of confession and repentance of her sin. Notice what he says here. He's, he's moving this conversation that way. Verse 16, go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband. The woman replied, Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband. For you've had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Now, what was the sin that Jesus was pointing out here? You look at that and you think, okay, she's been married five times. Well, we don't know what kind of marriages she had. Maybe she had five husbands that cheated on her. Maybe she had husbands that were abusive, and she needed to get out of those those marriage relationships. But here, Jesus said, you know, this man you're living with now, he's he's not your husband. You're not married to him. Now, that obviously was pointing out to her clearly. You're living in sin. God's design for a man and woman to live together was always in a relationship of marriage. Not just to, you know, see how it'll work out, not just for comfort, not just for convenience, I mean, God's very specific, and, and Jesus just confronts her with it. But you know what? I don't think it's the, that sin that, that Jesus was saying, hey, here it is. Here's the big sin you need to be forgiven of. The five marriages that have failed and the husband that she's living with now is like five marriages. She, she finally said, okay, I, I'm done with marriage, but I need a man. I mean, obviously, five times, maybe there were bad marriages, and she just kept going back and getting married again, finding another guy, hoping this will be the right one, and he wasn't. She'd marry again. She did that five times, and finally she found a guy and said, hey, we ain't getting married, but we're just going to live together because I need you. Jesus was helping her see that, hey, listen, these men, these, these guys you've been married to and the one you're living with now, they can't satisfy you. They can't satisfy you. And anything that you try to put in my place is sin. So the point being right here is that we must stop seeking satisfaction in earthly things. So it's pretty universal here. For this woman, it was men. You're trying to, you're trying to find love, and, and you're going to miss it. Only Jesus can give you that love. So, Look what she said. Notice uh, notice in this conversation. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. Now, that would have been a good place for her right there to go, you're right. I've sinned. I've I've sinned. I've sinned against God. I've been disobedient and for her to confess and turn from her sin. Now, let me just say this. When you come to Christ, repentance is essential. Everything that I hear today, or not everything, but a lot I hear in presenting the gospel is a presentation of the gospel without repentance. And and folks, that's not biblical. Jesus, John the Baptist, prepared to wait for Jesus. What did he preach? Repentance. So, Jesus comes on. What does he preach? Repentance. What's he doing with this lady? He's he's pointing out the sin, giving her an opportunity to what? Confess and turn from your sin. Now, there's one thing here in this statement she made in verse 19. She didn't deny. So, I believe God was working on her. And let me just tell you when you're talking to someone, you're presenting the gospel to someone, it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict, not ours. You don't have to nail somebody about their sin, you don't bring conviction to anybody. That's the Holy Spirit's job. And and when the Holy Spirit begins working in somebody and convicting them of their sin, then, then that's God's work in drawing them away from that sin, giving them repentance, granting repentance to them so they can turn from their sin and put their trust in Christ. Here, this woman, she at least acknowledged that he spoke truth so she knew that what she was doing was wrong. So look at verse 20. She goes on to say, so tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worship? Now, understand what she's saying here. She expected Jesus, now that he pointed out her sin, she expected Jesus to say, all right, here's what you need to do. Get yourself together, get back to Jerusalem, get you an animal, some sacrifice, take it to the temple, go see a priest, and get forgiveness of your sins. Old Testament. That's what they did. And and again, for Jew, it was in Jerusalem. For Samaritans, they wouldn't go to Jerusalem. So for them, it was Mount Gerizim. So she was just expecting Jesus to say, all right, here's how you can get forgiveness of sins. That's not what Jesus did. Notice what he says in verse 21. Believe me dear woman the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the father on this mountain or in Jerusalem What's he saying <laughs> I'm about to be crucified And and we all know what happened when he was crucified right The moment Jesus died on the cross the Bible says the curtain in the temple that that took away or protected the people or divided the people from the holy of holies, now was ripped. In other words, the access to God was now provided because Jesus was our once and for all sacrifice. They didn't need temple worship. They didn't need to bring their animals anymore. They didn't need to have these sacrifices over and over and over. No, Jesus will become that once and all sacrifice. So he says, hey, Jerusalem, Gerizim, ah, it doesn't matter. You can worship anywhere because I'm bringing forgiveness. Verse 22, you Samaritans know very little about the one you worship. While we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. Now, it looks like Jesus is being arrogant here, but he's not. He's just going back to the Old Testament there at Abraham where Abraham was told, listen, through your family, I'm going to bless you and you're going to be a blessing. And the prophecy would be true that, that Jesus, the Messiah, would come. From the Jews. So he was just saying, identifying himself, salvation comes through the Jews. Verse 23 But the time is coming, indeed it is here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. And then verse 24 For God is spirit. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that God is spirit? Well, it's really one of the basic definitions of the nature of God. When when you read in the Bible of who God is, you read that God is spirit. In other words, you and I can't see him. In fact, you go back to chapter one, just, just notice what John says in his beginning of this book, in that first chapter, verse 18, notice what he says. No one has ever seen God. But the only Son, who is himself God, is near to the Father's heart. He is a revealed God to us.